0: to greet you all this morning in the name of our risen Savior Jesus Christ and welcome you to this Christmas Eve uh, worship service of our Lord together. It's good to see you all. We continue today and bring to conclusion our series, our Christmas series from the book of Ruth, Christ in Ruth, and we come today to chapter four. And I appreciate all the Men and the messages that have brought us to this point. Uh, I think we have been blessed to hear God's word from Ruth, and it has been, at least for me, a very uh, edifying, very informative, and edifying series of messages. Because I am last, that there is some, um, I reckon. Repetition will be the best way to say it. There will be some repetition of some thoughts as we come to the closure of the book today. Um, If you would look at Ruth chapter 4, and we will read this chapter in our hearing. May we hear God's word. Now, Boaz, Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, for there is no one besides you to redeem it and I come after you. And he said I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and in his inheritance. Then the redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrata, and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamor bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went in to her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. The The women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. Father Aminadab, Aminadab; father Nashon, Nashon father Simon, Saman father Boaz, Boaz; father Obed, Obed; father Jesse, and Jesse, father David. May God be pleased to bless His Word and let His people say. Amen. May we pray together. Father, for Your Word, we are grateful for this portion of it that has been read in our hearing. Now we pray, Lord, that we will have hearing ears that we may hear the truths of Your Word, that we may see Jesus Christ, we may glory in Him, we may be awed by the inexpressible gift that You have given to us out of Your great love and mercy. Lord, we pray that You would be with us, that You would bless us, and I pray that You would be pleased to use me to convey Your gospel to this gathered congregation. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we begin with the prophecy, 700 years before the birth of Jesus. The prophet Micah wrote, and this is in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, From ancient days. How will this prophecy be realized? What will be required for the realization of this prophecy concerning the birth of the Messiah in the little town of Bethlehem? How is it that this little town of Bethlehem will become the birthplace of the world's greatest religions leader? Bethlehem of Ephraim. Will it require divine miracle or miracles, plural? Yes. Yes, it will. Because the birth of the king in Bethlehem is indeed a miracle. When Gabriel came to Mary and told Mary that she would conceive, her response was, how will this be since I am a virgin? And then Gabriel contended, uh, continued by informing her that, and this is Luke 137, that for nothing will be impossible with God. Yes, this indeed will be, the birth of, the, of Christ will indeed be the result of a miracle, what we call the virgin birth. No, it will not require a miracle. Joseph and Mary are not miraculously transported to Bethlehem. They're not here one day and all of a sudden they're picked up by an unseen divine hand and plopped down in Bethlehem at the right time so Jesus will be born in Bethlehem. No. It doesn't require a miracle in that sense of the word. But there is the presence of a divine unseen hand of providence that guides and directs events So that Joseph and Mary will end up in Bethlehem at the right time. And that divine providential hand, which our confession says upholds and directs all things, does indeed direct all things. Great things like nation shaping famines, the appointment of kings, the picking up of kings, and the taking down of kings. And that hand of God's providence also is over mundane things like gathering food, like you going to work every day, and the health to make provision. So it involves wonderful, magnificent, tremendous things. And that providence reaches down to mundane, everyday events like gathering food out of the edges of a field. About 1,100 years before the birth of Jesus, there's a famine in Bethlehem. This famine will lead to the immigration of Naomi of Elimelech, and Naomi and their two sons, and they will go to Moab. And I think there's a little map in your bulletin that shows you the little trek they would have gone on and how they would have gotten to the land of Moab and then how they would have come back to Bethlehem. But this journey is not an uneventful journey. As the Word of God says in Psalm 42, verse 7, deep calls to deep. Trouble travels in packs. Famine leads to immigration. And Naomi and Elimelech and their two sons will move to the land of Moab, but we know the story that there Elimelech dies tragedy on tragedy but excuse me Naomi survives her two sons survive they marry women of moab seems that life will go on but tragedy on tragedy on tragedy the sons die both of them and they die without any heirs without any children Now Naomi is a stranger in a strange land all alone, but she hears good news, and the good news is that there's bread in Bethlehem. In the house of bread, Bethlehem, there is now bread. And so Naomi purposes to return to Bethlehem. Of course, her two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth, she tells them, don't come with me, you can't go with me. Orpah goes back home. (coughs) Ruth will not go back home. And she utters those beautiful words that we love from Scripture where Ruth says to her mother-in-law Naomi, For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me. From you so the women leave Moab and they return to Bethlehem and Judah and they arrive at the time of the barley uh, harvest but Naomi and Ruth are still destitute they don't have anything so Ruth goes out according to law that we'll look at a little bit closer in a few moments and she begins to glean Uh, enough to eat from the fields that the harvesters do not pick. And she ends up, as you would go, she ends up in the field of Boaz. And she is provided with plenty, plenty of food. So that in the meeting of Boaz, she eventually will marry, and she will have a son, and the son's name will be Obed and then there will be Jesse, and then there will be David, so that you flash ahead a thousand years to Luke chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town, and Joseph also went up from Galilee From the town of Nazareth to Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Why? Because he was of the house and lineage of David. So what we read that occurs a millennium before through the directing providential hand of God will result in Joseph going to Bethlehem, carrying with him Mary, where Jesus will be born and the story that we love of the nativity so much. Ruth, then, the book of Ruth, as you've noticed, closes with a genealogy. Um, Ferguson writes, the final words are actually the most important in the book. If there's no famine, there's no immigration. If there's no immigration, there is no coming back with Ruth. To Bethlehem if there's no Ruth there's no marriage to Boaz if there's no marriage to Boaz there's no Obed if there's no Obed there's no Jesse if there's no Jesse there's no David if there's no David there is no birth of Jesus in Bethlehem and thus we see the providential hand of God as it spans millenniums of time In accomplishing and bringing about a prophecy that is made concerning the birth of Jesus Christ. But then we stop and we ask the question about the greater story. Why is Ruth in the Bible? What's its point? There's 66 books. Real estate in the Bible is precious. And yet God places the book of Ruth he inspires the book of Ruth is inspired word of God it's here in holy scripture why well there's a lot of reasons that we could mention one I've just talked about the book of Ruth is a narration of God's providence if you want a his- historical narration of Romans eight twenty eight that we know all things work together for good for those that love God who have the called according to his purpose read Ruth read the book of Ruth because this is where you see God working all these things, big things, little things, mundane things, important things. All of these things God is working together to a, to a purpose, to an end, to a goal. And also we can learn a lesson here, can we not, that dark providence, what we sometimes refer to as frowning providence, when things are bad, like death of husband, death of son, Starving to death, not having enough to eat, not having a place to live, frowning providence. Doesn't mean there's no providence. For well, where do we see God's hand so so great? But right here in the book of Ruth, in his providential hand. It was during the awful days of Ahab and Jezebel and the slaughter of prophets. Where we read that God reserved 7,000 for himself that did not bow the knee to Baal. It's right here in the era of the judges, a dark, foreboding, depressing time in the history of Israel. What do we see? We see this great narration, not just of a love story, but of the providential hand of God in the lives of these people should you not have such hope today we live in some very trying times very dark days very depressing days does that mean the hand of god's providence is not in effect of course not and so i look at ruth and i go well one great lesson we learn from ruth is frowning providence doesn't mean there's no providence we see this great story right here in the middle of all this tragedy one of my favorite christmas hymns i think more because of when it was written i like the, i like the words but i think probably more because of when it was written is one of, is reason one of my favorites and it's by henry uh, wadsworth longfellow and it's i heard the bells on christmas day and it's one of i think two i believe there are two christmas hymns that were written during the throes of the civil war and this is one of them and listen to these words from longfellow and in despair i bowed my head there is no peace on earth i said for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth goodwill to men you ever feel that way i do it's like where's peace on earth Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, good will to men. So yes, I think one of the reasons we see the book of Ruth is much like the book of Esther. It is a wonderful story of the providence of God. But then it's also a cameo of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. You see, both of these brought together in this wonderful narration that we find here in the book of Ruth see at Spurgeon there's a lot of things credited to him but this is a credit to him as well was once asked if he could reconcile God's sovereignty and man's responsibility no he said I wouldn't try I never reconcile friends there's not a problem if the problem is in our thinking, not, not in God's sovereignty and in man's responsibility. But here in the book of Ruth, we see the hand, we see God's sovereign hand. But we also see men engaging. Elimelech leaves where there's no food to try to find food for his family. Then they come back and they they're, they're, they're still need food. Well, what does Ruth do? She goes to glean. There she meets Boaz. And then what happens in chapter 3? You Bo- uh, excuse me. Ruth concocts; she hatches a a real, I don't, I won't say devious, but a pointed scheme, so that her daughter-in-law Ruth can end up being married to Boaz. So we see God's sovereignty throughout the book, but we see men interacting with it throughout the book. Thirdly, we would say that the book illustrates God's faithfulness. In the preservation of the lineage of Jesus Christ. At the heart of redemptive history is the expectation that God will send his Savior, the Christ. Who will save his people from their sins and he will destroy all the enemies of God. We see that promise first in Genesis 3.15 where we're told that the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent and he will bruise his heel. But almost as soon as we read those words, what do we read? That Cain rises up and he kills Abel. And it's like before the story even starts, it ends. The lineage is stopped. Oh, but Eve conceives and she has a son named Seth. And she says, I've got a man from the Lord. Those those are poignant words. The line goes on. But then almost as soon as we get through with that, what do we find? There is this wickedness all over the face of the earth. And God says, I'm going to destroy the earth. Everything that draws breath. Every living being. Ah, but then we read, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And the line goes on. Then we get to the Tower of Babel and there's mass confusion and god the men have made themselves god what's going to happen in all this confusion well god reaches as it were way across to the uh, tigris and euphrates river to the land of ur and he calls a man by the name of abram and he says oh you're going to be my vessel it's through you but abram's childless he's old his wife is old Oh, but there is that wonderful birth of Isaac. And the line goes on. But then there's famine. And because of famine, they go to Egypt. And in Egypt, the Pharaoh will order the death of every firstborn son. The male children will be killed. Oh, the line's going to stop. Oh, no, but God raises up Moses. And then you get to Canaan. And there's giants in in that land. What are we going to do? And the first city is a walled city. How are we going to get past Jericho? Oh, there's a Rahab. God provides a Rahab. And it's Rahab, by the way, is what? The grandmother of Boaz? And the line goes on. Time and time and time again, we see the preservation of the lineage of Christ. Even do we come down to where Joseph is is espoused he's engaged to Mary, and it's discovered that she's expecting and Joseph is a just man and he says I can't have this this is not going to stand I don't want to embarrass her. I'm not going to make a scandal out of it but I'm, I'm going to put her aside quietly I'm going to divorce her <coughs> no God will not allow that God comes in and sends the message don't be afraid And then the child is born and Herod will kill every child that God delivers his son. Time after time after time after time we see the lineage of the Messiah go on. By miracle and by providence it goes on. We too are threatened, are we not? Do you ever think Lord, I don't know if I'm going to ever make it to the finish line. I, when Paul, Paul told Fib he is not the greatest sinner. I am. He was mistaken. I am the worst sinner, Lord. How am I ever going to make it? God is faithful. So we read in Philippians, and I'm sure of this, and this is the story of Ruth. It's the story of the Bible, but... Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who has begun a good work in you will bring it to completion Amen. at the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. Oh yeah, there's Ruth, and there's that, there's that story. But most of all, and where we will camp out the rest of our time in the book of Ruth and getting back to Ruth chapter 4, most of all, I would say that Ruth is a portrait of redemption. John Calvin once said that when God speaks to us, he, quote, lisp with us as nurses are wont to do with little children. In other words, that's baby talk, if you please. I remember when our children were small and trying to rear them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and I didn't always read the KJV to them and didn't have the ESV then. but what I did do is we had pictorial Bible, we had a children's Bible, and sometimes we would act out things, we would sing songs to help them grasp the story. That's what Calvin means when he says God lisp to us. Why does God do that? Because he loves us and he knows that no matter how big you get, how old you become, how smart you are, nobody is capable of comprehending God. So God Speaks to us as it were in baby talk. Well, when I look at the book of Ruth, I think God is speaking to us, speaking to me. He's lisping to me the gospel. He's telling me the gospel in a historical narration. And that's what the book of Ruth, I think, primarily is about. And in order then to see Ruth properly, we must see Christ if you don't see Christ, I don't think we've seen the book correctly. So with that in mind, let's look now to Ruth chapter 4. In the first 12 verses, we're dealing with what's called the Levirate Laws. Leveret, Leveret Laws. <clears throat> in verse uh, 3 of chapter 4, Naomi, we are told, is planning to sell the land that belonged to her late husband, Elimelech. We get the sense from chapter 3, verse 1, the reason she's doing this is really for Naomi's sake. Because she wants to make provision for, Na- uh, excuse me, for, did I get the names backwards? Yeah. Naomi is selling the land that belonged to Elimelech, and she's doing it primarily for Ruth's sake. Sorry. Stand up here and try to get all those names straight every time. <laughs> But it seems that she's trying to do it for her daughter-in-law's sake. John, I don't know if this is one of your uncles or not, but Professor Robert L. Hubbard writes, the land was Elimelech's share in the tribal land passed down from ancestors over the centuries. Now, one must fully grasp how important it was for an Israelite to have an heir living on the family land. The loss of land and heirs amounted to personal annihilation. An Israelite's afterlife depended upon having descendants living on ancestral soil. Without them, he ceased to exist. We know that names in the Bible were more than just pick a name out of a book, they had meaning. And a person's name was tied into their very existence. You read in the gospel where Jesus would say that he's not the God of the dead but of the living, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. The name dealt with their very reality. Without an heir, if Naomi sells this ancestral land, she is in effect blotting out the name of her husband, Elimelech. They have no more holdings. No back to the division God made of the promised land, theirs is gone. The Levirate laws were intended to prevent this from happening in extreme situations. Now I'm reading from the Jewish Encyclopedia. It says, and speaking of the Levirate laws, it says, any duty which a man could not perform by himself had to be taken up by his next of kin, his goel and we will get to that word in a, in a moment more, but his goel. So the Leverett Laws intended for a widow in order for her to preserve her husband's name, thus their inheritance from God. A widow, if she had no children, was to marry her husband's brother. And then that child would be the heir, would carry on the line of, of his dead of his dead father. You read in Deuteronomy twenty five, five, and the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the dead brother, that his name the name of the dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. Again, this there's a lot there's a lot at stake here. It's not just simply land, there's more there's more to it than that. So the levirate laws, and they're not unique to Israel. You had them in, you had Hittite levirate laws, you had Assyrian levirate laws, and I, and I think even today in Kurdistan, they have such laws that provide for emergency continuation so a name will not be erased. But the function in ancient Israel was to prevent the deceased man's name from dying out and to ensure that his family Inherited the allotted land God gave in the division of the land. So we come to Ruth chapter 4, verse 10, and this is the Redeemer's role. Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, this is uh, Boaz making his declaration. I have bought to, I have bought, uh, excuse me, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate. It's not just so I can get the land, but it's to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from the living or from his brothers. And so what what we have here, and these laws can be a little bit sometimes honestly confusing when you try to delve into them like I've been trying for a week. I, you know, one question that always pops up so why did Boaz marry Ruth and not Naomi because it's Elimelech that the continuation is to go through well there's reasons I'll not go into all that you can ask me later we can, we can talk about it but in the in Boaz what he's doing is not simply purchasing land he is continuing the name of Elimelech and this is too much for Naomi's real, the closest kinsman, and he won't do that. And that's what brings Boaz into the deal so that he can secure uh, this property. Oh, the, the near kinsman of Naomi is willing to acquire the land, but he is not willing to perpetuate the name of Elimelech. Now, to acquire the land, he would have to buy it himself. He'd have to take money out of his own pocket and buy it. Oh, but that's a good investment. It's a good investment because. Elimelech's gone, and that land will not go back to him because he doesn't, there's no heirs. So it's mine perpetually. It doesn't go back to him in the year Jubilee because there's nobody for it to go to. And so, yeah, I put a little out, I put some capital out now, but that becomes my family's possession forever. I don't lose it again. Oh, but now Ruth and perpetuating the name of Elimelech, that adds another wrinkle. Because not only did I take the money out of my pocket he would have to to pay for the land, but now by Leveret laws, he has an obligation to continue the name of Elimelech, and that land isn't his, even though he bought it. It belongs to the heir of Elimelech, which would be the son of Ruth. And not only that, but let's say this nearest kinsman had a son or two, and they die. What happens to his possession? What happens to his name? It's gone. There's nobody there. It's gone. It then becomes, and it belongs to the son of Ruth. And so this man says, wait a minute, I'm willing to get the land. But now this perpetuating the name of Elimelech, ah, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not willing to do that. I can't do that. Let's put in peril my own inheritance. And so he will not do it. But Boaz is willing. He's willing to purchase the land. He's willing to perpetuate the name of Elimelech. He's willing to invest all of this at no uh, result for him as far as land or money or, or such things are going. But now you can see, uh, I trust you can see, that a prominent theme in the book of Ruth is Redeemer. Now that is a word or a word group that's used 11 times in Ruth. Seven of those times are right here in Ruth chapter 4, the word Redeemer. And the word Redeemer is translated from the word, Hebrew word goel. I checked my pronunciation with our Hebrew scholar, and I think I got it right. But the word is goel, G-O-E-L. Not noel, but goel. And that is the, the, the near kinsman. He is the redeemer. Now, there are three basic functions of a goel. The goel was to redeem the land. And this is what's part of what's going on. We read in Leviticus, if your brother becomes poor, sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer, his goel, shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. So it's to redeem land. The second purpose of the goel was to redeem the enslaved. Leviticus 25, 48. After he has sold, he may be redeemed. If a man becomes so poor that he has to sell himself into slavery in order to, to live, then a richer near kinsman may redeem him. Or if that man's fortunes turn around, he may buy himself out. And the third is what... In the Bible, it's called the Avenger of Blood. It is the Goel Hadam. And this is in Numbers 35, 19. The Avenger of Blood shall himself put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. And someone killed a near kinsman. You didn't have judicial laws like we have now, but what you had was you had a Goel. And the Goel then had the responsibility... Track down that person as they got to one of the cities of refuge and exact justice on that person. Redeem land, redeem the person that's enslaved, and exact justice. Those were the three purposes. Now, as Pastor John pointed out last Lord's Day, there are three requirements. The goel must be a near kinsman. There was a kinsman nearer to Naomi than than, uh, uh, Boaz. But Boaz is in the line. So the near kinsman would not fulfill Boaz's willing. So he's near kinsman. Second is they have to be, it has to be voluntary. This is not enforced. This man stepped out of this voluntarily. I, I can't do that. I won't do that. And so he, he didn't do it. Now in, in Deuteronomy, and I don't know if it's where the shoe comes from in Ruth or not. That's an interesting custom. But in the book of Deuteronomy, if a man did not fulfill his requirements says the near kinsman, the redeemer of the Goel, the widow would come to him, pull off his shoe and spit in his face. And he was marked. He was like, he's the man that will not redeem his brother. Now, that was an awful thing. Now, I don't think that's exactly what's going on here, because they swap shoes in this transaction. The third point I would mention about, the third uh, requirement is, he has to have the ability to redeem. So this man, this near kinsman, had the money, but Boaz also had it. Otherwise, he couldn't have done it. So he he has the ability. So he's a near kinsman. He has the desire. He does it voluntarily. And he has the wherewithal to accomplish this redemption. Now, The story of Ruth is really the story of two Goels. We have the first one in chapter 4, the first 12 verses, and that's Boaz. Boaz redeems the land of Elimelech. He perpetuates Elimelech's name, and he does all of this according to the law. All this is according to the law. But then if you look at chapter 4, verse 13, there's another Goel, and it's it's not Boaz. It's Obed let's look at it again so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception she bore a son then the women said to Naomi blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer now is he talking about Boaz? who's the subject? the subject is Obed her son the son of of Ruth He has not left you this day without a redeemer may his name be renowned in Israel he who? who's the he? Her son, her Goel, her near kinsman, her redeemer. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. And so I've got two redemptions, as it were, going on here. I've got one of Boaz, who's doing everything according to the law. And then I've got Obed, who's acting a little bit differently. It's not law that motivates Ruth. What motivates Ruth to give her son, Obed, to Naomi to be her near kinsman? What motivates her? Love. She does this because she loves her mother-in-law. That's what the women say. It's not required of her to do this, but she does it. And then we notice that the language about Obed is prophetic as opposed to hopeful. In verses 11 and 12, when it's speaking about Boaz, the language is hopeful. May it be. May it be. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord Make the woman who has come in your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Africa and be renowned in Bethlehem. May it be, may it be. Oh, but you shift down and the language comes more prophetic. Not so much a good thought. It becomes more definite. Look at verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who may not leave you. No. Who has not left you this day without a redeemer. Oh, that's definite. And then we read on. And may his name be renowned in Israel. It's similar. He shall be, not may he be. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher Of your old age. You see a shift. You see a a movement. Between. Boaz as redeemer now. And Obed as redeemer. One is. May it be so. And the other is. It is. And it shall be so. Which brings us to an interesting question. Is the gospel. Potential good news is the gospel potentially that God might save his people from their sins or is the gospel actually good news you shall call his name Jesus why for he shall save his people from their sins you see the difference There's a huge difference between a potential gospel, a potential atonement, and a real atonement, a real redemption. May it be. That's great. But He shall be. So this is more than wishful thinking. It was read this morning in Bible study, John 10, 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must... I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. May it, it's not a may it be so. It is a declaration of what is. And the root of this, again I point this out, but the root of this is love. Love. For God so loved, why did He give? Is it required by law? Well, yes, in one sense. In order... For us to be forgiven our sins, the law has to be fulfilled. But is under is God under some law? Is He under some requirement to give His Son that you might be saved? Is God be, is His arm being twisted? Is His nose being tweaked that He must do this? No. Why does God act towards us as Redeemer? Out of love. He so loves He gives. And so then we come to our closure today with this great observation in the book of Ruth. Christ is our Goel. He is our Goel. And I'm going back to some of what Pastor John said. I realize that, but this is where we are in chapter 4. He is our Goel. He is our near kinsman. How is He our near kinsman? What are we celebrating? The incarnation of Jesus Christ. The nativity. The birth of Christ. What happens At the incarnation of Christ. Well, the Word kind of tells you, doesn't it? What happens at the birth of Christ? God becomes man. He takes on flesh. He becomes us. Look in your Bibles to Hebrews for just a moment. Hebrews chapter 2. Notice verse 14 of Hebrews 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were sub- subject to lifelong slavery. Now, we see actions of the Goel right there, don't we? We'll come back to that. For surely it is not angels that He helps. Christ didn't come to save angels. He's not their Redeemer. But He helps the offspring of Abraham, us, flesh and blood. Therefore, he had to be made, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when he tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He's our near kinsman. Christ becomes, God becomes flesh, Emmanuel. And that's what Christmas is celebrating, isn't it? Secondly, he's able. With what are you redeemed? How long is your hope? Is your hope temporal or eternal? Are you redeemed with temporal, timely, passing matters or are you redeemed with eternal matter? First Peter, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. What does it require for the forgiveness of sins? Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Is it the shedding of anybody's blood? It is of the near kinsman who is able to save us to the uttermost, because he is the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. He is willing. He is willing. Ephesians 5:25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And what did he do? He gave himself for her. And then in verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but, cherish, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Why did Christ do what he did? Love. He is willing he is able. He is then your kinsman. Now last. Christ executes all the duties of the Goel. What were those duties? I went through them. They redeemed the land. redeemed the enslaved. And they execute justice. Vengeance. Those were the three primary duties of the Goel. Christ redeems the land. Romans 8, verse 21, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Paul writes that creation itself is groaning and waiting for the day of redemption. That creation, the world, the cosmos, the stars, black holes, everything we can think about, all are under the curse of sin and they're hurtling toward the end. Ah, but Christ purchases us. He redeems us. And apparently that redemption reaches to the very cosmos because He will create a new heavens and a new earth wherein we shall forever dwell. He redeems the land. It's not... To me, those are some of the richest, fullest promises in the Scripture when you start going down that road and you start getting a fuller, in my mind at least, from my, my perspective, a fuller, more glorious view of eternity. It's not an ethereal existence on clouds dancing with angels. But it's living and a body that God will raise from the grave, uncorrupted, to live forever in this new paradise called the new heavens and the new earth. Yes, Christ redeems the land. Secondly, he redeems the enslaved. When Christ began his ministry, he went into the synagogue, and he stood and he read from the prophet Isaiah, this is in Luke 4, and he said this, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to, cap, to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now, whether you know it or not, if you're in Christ, you know it. But if you're not in Christ, you don't yet realize it yet. But you're a slave, you're oppressed, you're held in bondage. And Christ sets us free. He is the Goel, the Redeemer than your kinsman. And thirdly, he is the avenger of blood. Turn to Revelation chapter nineteen for a moment. Revelation nineteen, I'll begin at verse eleven and read through verse sixteen. Then I saw heaven opened the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth, from the Goel, from the Redeemer, from the Word of God, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on whose robe and whose thigh He has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the avenger. He comes to not just save His people, but to destroy every enemy of His people. Sickness, sorrow, death, you name it. We read in Revelation how the former things are passed away. He dries the tears from the eyes because he is the great Goel. It's closed closed this morning with Ruth 4.16. This all has been said. This all has transacted. There is this prophetic word that has been spoken and now Naomi. The book opens with her and it closes with her, except for the genealogy. And we've really, now the story has really come full circle. We've gone from loss and death and bitterness and hopelessness to fullness, to life, to joy and hope. We've made made the full circuit here. And this is Naomi's response. Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and became his nurse she takes the child this precious goel to her breast it's her goel it is her refresher it is her restorer of soul it reminds me of simeon when he goes into the temple let your servant depart with peace for mine eyes have seen thy salvation so has naomi and it's precious and she draws the the Goel to her breast. Well, every forgiven sinner, I would say, in love, wants nothing more than to draw our Redeemer, our great Goel, to our hearts. Precious in our sight is our Lord. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this great historical narration of the book of Ruth. We thank you, Lord, that you lisp to us. You speak to us as children. You draw with crayons and write in big letters so that it cannot be ignored or not seen. Yes, while it is a true historical narration of a man and a woman. Oh, Lord, how much greater, how much fuller is it? of your love of christ our redeemer father may we indeed receive him may he be close and near to us dear to us may we draw him as it were to our bosom knowing that he is our great comforter our great nourisher our great restorer of soul For it's in the blessed name of jesus i pray amen yes.